Our call to worship comes from the end of Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For the dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn, for he has done it. And so let's come to that God in prayer. Let us pray together. We come to you, the God of Abraham and Sarah, of Miriam and Moses, of David and Jonathan, of Naomi and Ruth, of Mary, Martha and Lazarus, of the Syrophoenician woman and the Roman centurion. We come to you, God of all creation, recalling that you declared all creation to be good, blessed it and set it free. Believing that having allowed such incredible diversity, you delight in difference longing to be welcomed as we are, warts and all, by the one whom Jesus called Father. We approach you as the God who has shared our humanity, bearing with us in the burdens of daily life, the scars of sickness, struggle and sin. We believe that you may lift those from us and share them with us, lightening the load, as we become aware of the ever-present comforter and helper, the one Jesus named as Spirit. We rest in you and with you, God who is our life breath inspiring us with new ideas and new imaginings of what your reign is like, blowing away the cobwebs of tedium and lethargy, energising us afresh for discipleship and service, so that we may live the faith we profess as part of the body of Christ, known as the Church. We offer these prayers in and through the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm just double checking there. It is the whole of Galatians chapter 3 that is our reading today. And we listen for the word of God. You foolish Galatians, who put a spell on you? Before your very eyes, you had a clear description of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Tell me this one thing Did you receive God's Spirit by doing what the law requires? or by hearing the gospel and believing it. How can you be so foolish? You began by God's spirit. Do you now want to finish by your own power? Did all your experience mean nothing at all? Surely it meant something. Does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you because you do what the law requires? 
or because you hear the gospel and believe it. Consider the experience of Abraham. As the scripture says, he believed God and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. You should realize then that the real descendants of Abraham are the people who have faith. The scripture predicted that God would put the Gentiles right with himself through faith. And so the scripture announced the good news to Abraham. Through you, God will bless the whole human race. Abraham believed and was blessed. So all who believe are blessed as he was. Those who depend on obeying the law live under a curse. For the scripture says, whoever does not always obey everything that is written in the book of the law is under God's curse. Now, it is clear that no one is put right with God by means of the law, because the scripture says only the person who is put right with God through faith shall live. But the law has nothing to do with faith. Instead, as the scripture says, whoever does everything the law requires will live. But by becoming a curse for us, Christ has redeemed us from the curse that the law brings. For the scripture says... Anyone who is hanged on a tree is under God's curse. Christ did this in order that the blessing which God promised to Abraham might be given to the Gentiles by means of Christ Jesus, so that through faith we might receive the spirit promised by God. My brothers and sisters, I'm going to use an everyday example. When two people agree on a matter and sign an agreement, no one can break it or add anything to it. Now God made his promises to Abraham and to his descendants. The scripture does not choose the plural descendants, meaning many people, but the singular descendant, meaning only one person, only, namely, Christ. What I mean is that God made a covenant with Abraham and promised to keep it. The law, which was given 430 years later, cannot break that covenant and cancel God's promise. For if God's gift depends on the law, then it no longer depends on his promise. However, it was because of his promise that God gave that gift to Abraham. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added in order to show what wrongdoing is, and it was meant to last until the coming of Abraham's descendant, to whom the promise was made. The law was handed down by angels with a man acting as a go-between, but a go-between is not needed when only one person is involved, and God is one. Does this mean that the law is against God's promises? No, not at all. For if human beings had received a law that could bring life, then everyone could be put right with God by obeying it. But the scripture says that the whole world is under the power of sin. And so the gift which is promised on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ is given to those who believe. But before the time for faith came, the law kept us all locked up as prisoners until this coming faith should be revealed. And so the law was in the charge of us until Christ came, in order that we might then be put right with God through faith. Now that the time for faith is here, the law is no longer in charge of us. It is through faith that all of you are God's children in union with Christ Jesus. You are baptized into union with Christ, and now you are clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ himself. So, there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free people, between men and women. You are all one in union with Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, 
then you are the descendants of Abraham and will receive what God has promised. The title I have chosen for today's sermon borrows quite unashamedly from the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes, or at least the Hollywoodized version of that story. Does anybody, everybody know that story? Anybody not know that story? Okay. It's a cautionary tale centering on a powerful, arrogant man who is hoodwinked by a pair of fake tailors who sell him an invisible suit, which can only be seen by people of appropriate status and education. Fearful of ridicule or worse, the court officials collude with the emperor and the tailors, exclaiming how wonderful the suit is. And a procession is held for the explicit purpose of inviting people to admire the new outfit, the emperor's new clothes. All is going very well, until a small child, ignorant of the edict, is so shocked to see the emperor wearing nothing at all, or in the words of the musical, in the altogether, that he exclaims what he sees and breaks the spell, freeing other people to take up the cry. Look at the king, look at the king, look at the king, the king, the king. The king is in the altogether. And so it goes on. So this king or emperor is faced with a dilemma. Does he admit his stupidity and risk being shamed? Or does he just brazen it out and carry on with the procession? It seems that Hans Christian Andersen adapted this tale from a pre-existing Spanish story in which the invisible suit could only be seen by the person's true father. It was something about who was your true parent. Um, But he changed the ending to get the purpose that he wanted about arrogance and shame, about collusion and all that sort of stuff. The idea of a person's true identity being largely invisible but observable by their parents is perhaps not quite so different from where Paul ends up in this chapter with his reference to being clothed in Christ so that gender, status and race disappear as the invisible to the world sign of the true believer takes over. This middle chapter of the letter to Galatia is complicated and profound with many interwoven ideas, none of which we can explore fully in a single sermon. And even so, there's plenty that we can look at and take with us for further consideration out with this service. The stern tone of Paul's writing, of which we've been aware since the very beginning of this letter, continues as strong as ever. Twice in the first few two, two or three verses, he accuses his readers of foolishness. You foolish Galatians, he says. He's not saying they're a bit daft. He's not saying you're just a bit ignorant or a bit ditzy or anything. This word carries with it a deep sense of hopelessness. Spiritual or possibly moral poverty 
Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Whoever calls a brother or a sister a fool is in danger of the fire of hell. Why? Because to call somebody foolish is a really, really serious indictment. And it may suggest a degree of being willfully stupid, of choosing to go the wrong way and steadfastly doing it. So what Paul's saying here is pretty strong stuff. Not that the Galatians are daft, but actually they are very stupid and maybe willfully so. He even goes so far to accuse them of having been bewitched or put under a spell that prevents them from recognizing the gospel hope with which they began. Having begun well, guided by God's liberating spirit, they have become ensnared by the law's requirements concerning who is in and who is out of God's covenant. Commentators suggest that what we have here is not antinomianism, a rejection of the law's moral basis in the light of God's grace, but actually rejection of a legalistic form of gnomism that focused on the external rituals that signified inclusion and exclusion from the covenant, such as circumcision for males, dietary dietary restrictions and the purity laws. So it's not against the law per se in a kind of just, just throw it away way of looking at it, but it's against this reversion to rituals related to the law to exclude rather than include. It's not necessarily the case either that they were being legalistic in a way we might define it today, stressing the letter of the law in the way that was some of the Pharisees and officials did, whom Jesus came into contact with. They were just losing sight of what the cross was all about and leaning towards a theology of salvation by works. If you performed the correct rituals correctly, you were in, and if you didn't, you were out, and that you could get there by your own effort. Of course, it's possible that legalism and dogmatism were creeping into the churches, but it doesn't seem, if the commentators are to be trusted, that this is what Paul is talking about. One of the really fascinating things, for me anyway, about this chapter is the way Paul records his own theological reflection on some aspects of Hebrew scripture. Interpreting writings familiar to his readers in the light of his own encounter with Christ and their coming to faith in him. The starting point for his exploration begins not with Moses, the liberator and bringer of the law, but with Abraham, or if he wants to be pedantic, Abram at that point, the childless elderly man with whom God entered a covenant that would see him become the father of a great nation and through whom all nations, all the world, would be blessed. This promise, coming from God's love, mercy, and grace, precedes the giving of the law by around about 400 years. I love that little bit of precision. This was so many years before the law came, or the law came so many years after this. This promise, according to Paul, found its fulfillment in the mystery of the cross. 
in between times, between Abram and the promise and between Jesus and the cross and resurrection, the as-yet immature Israel needed the guidance of a nanny. Or perhaps more accurately, someone like an ayah, or in the American southern states of old, one of the black helps. Who's seen the film The Help? One of those women who was basically a slave or a domestic servant, whose job it was to take care of the children and teach them the difference between right and wrong. The law given via Moses was this nanny. Um, the, a lot of the English translations say disciplinarian, but that's not quite what the Greek says. The Greek translates more as a nanny. This nanny who had the job to keep Israel on track until such time as it was mature and could live its own way. I think it's probably fair to say that very often the law has been understood not as the servant of God to protect and guide us as we grow up, but rather as some kind of blunt instrument employed by God who is seen as a disciplinarian. There's a very important and often overlooked distinction there. The law as the servant of God, a nanny to take care of children as they grow up. Obedience can be motivated by fear of punishment rather than the more mature understanding of the underlying principles and purposes of the law. Understood as a blunt instrument, legalism creeps in and can lead people of faith to act as judge and jury to condemn or exclude those who don't match their understanding of what the law says. And actually that's not what the law is about, if what Paul says here is correct. Without mincing his words, Paul goes on to say that the law has become a curse rather than a blessing. Instead of protecting the nation as it grew and matured, so that it could fulfill its own role of blessing others, it's become a hindrance whereby people try to live perfect lives when actually what matters is faith. And actually it's impossible to live a perfect life. One of Paul's key theological themes expressed throughout his letters is what is referred to as the sola fide, sola gratia, or gratia, view of salvation. Salvation by faith through grace. It's a theology that Protestant Christianity goes on about greatly, but I don't always think takes the time to understand. The law came after the promise to Abraham, and the law cannot override or annul that promise to Abraham. It has to be understood in its correct context for its correct purpose and not allowed to overstep that. According to Paul in this letter, the law doesn't act as a means of liberation or understanding. It's becoming a source of a curse. If you can't keep every last detail of the law, you will be cursed. But who can do it? Who can actually say they know all of the law off by heart and understand it, never mind live in accordance with it. A few years ago, somebody wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. Has anybody come across it or read it? It was 
an experiment undertaken by an American man who tried to live by the letter of the Old Testament law. Not just the bits in the first five books, but also some of the bits that appear in Proverbs and elsewhere. And he did it to the letter of the law, well, nearly, because the injunction to kill or to stone, he just got a little pebble and would go up to somebody and just tap them with the pebble. And he said, well, that's okay, I've stoned them now. And he discovered just how obscure and unintelligible some of these rules are, reflecting a culture that is just too far away for us to say unequivocally, this is what it means. Okay, so just to check that we um, know our law properly, here are a few bits of Old Testament law which Christianity has long since discarded. From Leviticus chapter 19, to the men. Do not cut the hair on the sides of your heads or trim your beard. I don't think anyone's keeping that one. To those of us who maybe want to build houses from Deuteronomy, when you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you not, may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. How many of us have got parapets around the top of our houses? Okay, this one from Leviticus 21. None of your descendants, this is to Aaron, who has any physical defects, may present the food offering to me. This applies for all time to come. No man with any physical defect may make the offering. No one who is blind, lame, disfigured, or deformed. No one with a crippled hand or foot. No one who is a hunchback or a dwarf. No one with... One, sorry, with any eye or skin disease and no eunuch. So, um, sorry to all you blokes with glasses on. You're out. Make tassels on the four corners of the cloak you wear. Anybody got a cloak on? Never mind, four tassels. Last one. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to the standing grain. Sounds like permission to go scrumping to me. These laws we don't know. We don't understand them. They don't fit our culture and our context. And yet, we can do it, can't we? We can say that you must abide by the letter of the law. The law was being used, it seems, as a shibboleth an in-out place for who could or could not be part of the church. And it's impossible. As we read in James chapter 2, one of my favourite bits of the Bible, whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. This nanny, this servant of God, designed to help people grow and mature, is actually somehow turned into a confusing and contradictory monster, a means of a curse rather than an enabler of blessing. This is very important for what Paul is trying to do. He then goes on to select a few isolated verses from the scriptures that seem to contradict one another in order to make his case, so that the cross whereby Jesus took upon himself And therefore, upon God, the curse of execution by hanging on a tree has wrought freedom for all. 
God hasn't changed, the promise hasn't changed, and the law hasn't changed. But God has drawn the curse of sin inwards, fulfilling the requirement of the law once and for all, enabling this promise for all nations to be fulfilled, freeing the believers in Jesus to live as grown-up children rather than infants. What Paul does here is very significant. The Jewish scriptures can be divided into three main groups, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Because the law is the most significant and authoritative part of the scriptures, study of its minutiae became the life's work of the religious professionals and its transgression, the fear of sincere, ordinary folk. For these Jewish believers in Jesus who lived in Galatia, the resultant priority of Moses has never been questioned. But Paul reasserts the historical priority of Abraham, whose covenant with God is characterized not by a legal framework, not by judgment, but by a promise. First the promise, then the law, and now the gospel, the good news. Not the gospels that we have written down and canonized three or four centuries later, but the good news of Jesus Christ. So what is this good news? Quite simply, that faith in Christ is the means by which everyone in the churches has become a child of God. He goes on to compare our baptism with putting on new clothes. That effectively, we are clothed with Christ. And this garment does something absolutely amazing. As we put it on, all the humanly defined and humanly significant categories disappear. All of a sudden, racial distinctions vanish. Social status disappears. Gender is meaningless because we are all people like us. We are all people who are equal in the sight of our true parent, the God of promise who can be trusted. Though it takes centuries and centuries of human history for us to gain the maturity to really begin to grasp that. But here the mystery goes on. When we look around at each other, flawed and frail though we remain, part of what we see is the Christ who we are all being becoming more like. If we begin to see that wonder and that mystery, it's no wonder that Paul was wound up when he saw people sliding backwards, captive to past understandings that have now been transformed by the cross. It's no wonder that he was upset that they were becoming legalistic and missing the point that the curse of sin had been overcome once and for all and the promise to Abraham was becoming more fully fulfilled. We 
We began with Hans Christian Andersen's cautionary tale about arrogance and folly, collusion and exposure, epitomised by the emperor appearing in the altogether, as naked as the day he was born, so the song says. I wonder, though, if we find a subversive parallel, if such a thing is possible, in what Paul has to say. As we are clothed in the physically invisible garment of faith in Christ, we discover that rather than being embarrassed, isolated, and ashamed, we are all together, united in the adventure of the gospel, drawn into this ancient promise that the people of God will bring a blessing to all nations, to all the world. So, if we were going to write a postcard to the Galatians today, what might we write? Something like this, I think. Our God is a God of promise, whose desire to bless all nations is fulfilled in Christ, and that we, as God's children, anticipate the day when the outworking of that fulfillment becomes a lived reality. Amen. We come now with our prayers of intercession, our prayers for other people. And there is a very short response in the prayers. When I say the words, Lord, in your mercy, would you join me in saying, hear our prayer? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let's pray together. God of all wisdom, we come to you now with our prayers for others and for ourselves. We pray for those who hold positions of power and influence, for politicians and for leaders of commerce and industry. How easy it must be to be hoodwinked by the lure of status to be drawn into acts of folly or even corruption, to be carried along by silent or even spoken complicity of others. Grant integrity, wisdom and humility to all entrusted with such power, that they may serve well. And for those who have succumbed to temptation, who like the emperor in the fairy tale, find themselves exposed and shamed. Grant them the courage to admit their failings and to us and others the grace to forgive them and to move on. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those whose work is to read, reflect upon, and interpret the scriptures as ministers, teachers, and academics. How easy it is to slide either into unthinking literalism at one extreme or equally unthinking deconstruction at another. 
grant humility and openness to all entrusted with the hermeneutic and homiletic tasks, that they may ever be alert to your voice and open to new revelations of your eternal truths. And for those who have found themselves, like the Galatians, accused of falling under the spell or the allure of an understanding that is unhealthy or backwards, may they be given the courage to seek new insights. And may we and others have the grace to journey with them as they do so. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those who are the most vulnerable in our society. Those who are materially or educationally poor. Those of other nationalities. Those who are victims of discrimination or exclusion simply for who they are. those who are sick in body, mind or spirit. In the silence of our hearts, we name before God individuals and situations known to us, seeking God's transformative touch. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Finally, we pray for ourselves. In the silence, we open our hearts to God, allowing ourselves to offer freely our hurts, our questions, and our requests. In the silence, we bring our hopes, our dreams, and our new understandings. Trusting that the God of promise has heard us and will answer, we make our plea. Lord, in your mercy... Hear our prayer. We offer these our prayers in the name of Christ. Amen. And as we go from here, let's bless each other in the words of the grace. And then as we do occasionally, turn outwards and bless the city and the world in the same way. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all and evermore. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore.